Hello, Hive Nation, and welcome back to the Hive Nation podcast. Each week, we have leading experts in personal and professional development share their journeys and expertise to help you connect, engage, grow, and evolve. Today, we have a a very, very special guest um, uh, who has experienced absolute destruction, isolation, uh, survived near death, and not just from the... uh, tsunami and earthquake we're going to be talking about but also uh cancer survivor as well um so our, our guest today is is annie nakvi uh she is uh survived the 2004 earthquake and tsunami that happened in the thailand sri lanka indonesia area in uh, in 2004 and obviously we've we all have heard about that and are familiar with that uh, there's almost 230,000 casualties from that natural disaster. So uh, Annie survived it and is here to talk to us about it today. Um, so Annie basically has has turned that that story of complete destruction into a very successful executive transformation expert uh, business, mental fitness coach, a life coach, a mentor. Um, She's a motiva- motivational speaker as well, and she has ba- basically helped out or coached 250,000 global executives uh, over over the planet, which is amazing. So obviously overcoming adversity uh, is something that, that Annie is very good at and is very that uh, something that she's taken that into her her next life as a uh, coach and and mentor. So, uh, Annie, welcome to the program, and and I can't thank you enough for being here today. Thank you for having me as well. Yeah, you bet. So, would you mind just uh, walking us through a little bit as to your uh, recount of of how you know that that fateful day turned out uh, for you in two thousand four. Sure. Well, I was asleep in my hut on Boxing Day when, sorry, we call the the day after Christmas Boxing Day in the UK. And um, so we were, I was asleep in my hut, you know, uh, kind of sleeping off the Christmas festivities when all of a sudden the door to my hut flung open and water began flooding in. And in the split second, it took me to think, oh, my gosh, my passport, which was on something next to the door, uh, the water had started to come in right from the top of the door. And within milliseconds, the hut was filled with water. And it's completely pitch black. I have no clue as to what's happening. It, the, the water was thundering, you know, so it's like deafening, you know, a kind of like um, burst my eardrums at the time as well. It was so deafening. The force of the water was so strong, it ripped off all my clothes and my jewellery, apart from my T-shirt that just couldn't get off my head. Um, Otherwise, it took everything else off me. And you're completely disorientated and you're rolling around like a grain of rice in a washing machine. And it's like a black, uh, you know, the hut was black. And so it was completely disorientating because there's no light in there. The water is also black and... Uh, you know, you, so you don't know which way is up or down and you're drowning and fighting for your life. And that was the first time that I thought I was going to die. 
Now, eventually the hut disintegrated and I was washed inland. And the great thing about that was that I could see the light as the shafts of light coming through as each piece of the hut began to disintegrate. And I was able to orient myself up the right way uh, so that I could get some air. And I was you know, washed inland and I don't know how long I was in the water for time really bends you know time and space really bend when you're kind of in that sort of scenario but I could see that you know there was a jeep rolling around next to me I was drinking diesel water there were dead bodies already prone in the water next to me as well and I suddenly realized that whatever this thing was it was big enough that it had killed people and that if I didn't stop then I would, you know, get knocked out by something and, you know, would lose consciousness and also drown. But obviously that you are powerless in such a scenario. And I just got very lucky, was thrown into the path of a tree that I then grabbed hold of. And even though the water was still going over the top of my head, um, I managed to hold on to that tree for dear life. And then when the water got sucked out, I, you know, was able to sort of move. It, the water was still at chest height by then. Uh, eventually, we made it to higher ground after narrowly escaping a second tsunami that that um, was coming for us. And, you know, and then it was kind of like a long 24 hours um, of figuring out what happened and then trying to get airlifted to safety because... We were on the east coast of Sri Lanka and we had seven big tsunamis that happened. And it was the fifth tsunami that took out the bridge to, that connected us to the mainland. So after the fifth tsunami, we were now kind of had a crocodile filled lagoon on one side, the killer tsunami on another side and a leopard filled jungle on the other side. So that bridge that connected us to the mainland had gone. So we were completely stranded on this peninsula. So that was kind of like, you know, we got to higher ground and it was a, a few hours later that I sort of started to um, come out of my shock. I was giving first aid to other people at the time. And I kind of realized having been a former BBC broadcast journalist, that we needed to find out what had happened. We needed to get news coverage and we needed to find out you know, what had happened. Somebody had managed to make it up to that higher ground with the Jeep. And as soon as they arrived, I went to commandeer the Jeep radio to listen to the news to find out what had happened. And sure enough, those first early reports we weren't even the top of the running order. It was like a fourth or fifth down the running order of getting some reports that there's been an earthquake off the coast of Indonesia and that this may have triggered a tsunami across Asia. And they've cited the countries as Sri Lanka, India, Thailand, perhaps more. Once I realised the scale of the disaster, I realised that we were not going to get rescued where we were unless we got international press coverage on our flight, because it wasn't a particularly high tourist area, that part of Sri Lanka, and there wasn't heavily populated either. So I don't know how, but somehow I remember the number of the BBC switchboard, and this person who had the Jeep also had a satellite phone on him, and I was able to call the BBC switchboard to get them to put me through 
to somebody, you know, my old editor at the time, and to find out what, what had happened and whether there was, you know, what, you know, to find out what had happened, basically. And I, I didn't get through to my old editor, but I got through to a, a freelancer on um, who was on shift at the time, explained the scenarios, told her how many people there were and asked what happened. She said, yes, there's been a tsunami that has hit and all this kind of stuff. So she gave us the information. I told her, we, you need to get in touch with the British High Commission and get them to rescue us. I told her where we were, gave her the number. And sure enough, she got hold of them for us. And within an hour or so, the High Commissioner called me back. That's like the UK embassy in Sri Lanka and said, yes, we will send choppers to rescue you. But uh, it's already too late for this rescue operation today, because by the time that they arrive, it's going to be dark. But we will send them out first thing in the morning. So. The next day, I managed to get everyone else onto the choppers first and then took out the last chopper um, at the end of the day and got airlifted to safety. That's kind of like the potted <laughs> potted version of that story. Obviously, there's a lot more detail that goes into that. But yeah, um, I've written a book about, about it. So if your listeners want to hit, read more, then they can also get hold of my book as well. That must have been a long night. It was a very long night and, you know, we had the army come round in the evening, actually, and they they then started to tell us that there was going to be another tsunami. So when I spoke to the British High Commissioner, I, he said, look, we're not going to be able to rescue you till tomorrow. And I said to him, but we don't have any potable water here. The wells are contaminated now. Um, we don't have any food. We don't have any shelter. I mean, shelter's not so much of a problem because it's 24 degrees all, you know, in the nighttime. So it was warm enough. And so he was like, okay, I'm going to send the army round with some water and some supplies to keep you going until the morning. But when the army came round, what they did was they then said to us that there was going to be another tsunami and that they were going to need to move us. And they were going to need to move us by taking us along the shorefront to another cliff that was higher than where we were. Now, of course, pandemonium went through our camp with all of the survivors, Western and Sri Lankan, you know, not wanting to go anywhere near the waterfront, especially at dark, especially if there's another tsunami coming, et cetera, et cetera. So mass hysteria starts going through the entire um, survivor camp. And there's just an intuition that I had, that an instinct that I didn't quite believe them. And so I was like, okay, what should we do? Let's call the BBC again, because they would have had seismologists on. They will know the facts that would have happened. And having been a former journalist there, I trusted their science, you know, information that they would be giving. So I called the the um, the journalist again and I said, you know, is this true? And she said, no, it's not true. The reports that all of the seismologists are saying are saying that there is not going to be another tsunami, but we are getting eyewitness reports in India and Sri Lanka that this is going to happen. But this is more to do with panic within the population rather than any actual scientific basis. So I then relayed that information to the survivors. And I remember this scene really vividly because I had 
this two million, you know, I was ju just turned 32 or 33 at that time. Yeah. So I was quite young, relatively. But I had these two middle aged kind of people, one male, middle aged, salt and pepper hair, a French guy who was holding one arm, digging his hands and fingers into my arm. And then I had uh, an Israeli lady on the other arm, again, middle aged, salt and pepper hair, digging her arms into another digging her fingers into another arm. And I had this little girl that was staying in the in the same guest house that I was staying, who hadn't stopped crying since the time that she'd come to higher ground. Her hair, she had blonde hair, was all matted with twigs and mud and everything. She had all black streaks around her face from, you know, surviving everything. And just tears, you know, big, tears coming out of her blue eyes and I remember her face the most vividly because she was literally standing on my right foot and clamped onto my right leg and they were all like hysterical crying at me saying we don't want to leave we don't want to leave and it was at that moment I kind of realized that having been because I'd been doing the news announcements and telling people what had happened and that kind of thing and giving first aid it was then that I realised that people were looking to me as some sort of leader because I made the phone calls and, you know, um, had been giving news announcements. And this sense of responsibility of, you know, of heaviness of like, gosh, all these people are relying on me to help them. Uh, and that's what kind of, you know, made me call the BBC again. And, you know, and after that, when I told everybody, nobody went with the army. And sure enough, we all stayed together where we were. And there was no second tsunami, even though I'm sure all of us, including myself, were still looking at the highest um, tree or building that there was in case there was another tsunami. So, yeah, I mean, it was a long night. Uh, after that, though, I just encourage people to make camp for the night and to just rest and lie down and have a little bit of food and some water. Um, one of the amusing things when I was on the phone to the High Commissioner was he, um, you know, somebody called out, get them to bring cigarettes as well. So, you know, everybody's <laughs> wanting a cigarette to calm their nerves and everything. So they did, they took care of us for that night. And then, as I said, first thing in the morning, they, they sent those choppers over. I heard them at dawn while I was on the phone to the High Commissioner for the umpteenth time. You know, you talked about like the amount of energy that was in there. I read a I read an article on it that there was uh, the energy transfer that happened in that tsunami was 23,000 times the energy transfer of the Hiroshima bomb. And so wow. the atomic bomb. So that, that should give our listeners a little bit of perspective as to the absolute destruction that a tsunami, you know, causes. I mean, if you think about it, how much water that you had to have endured, like, I'm not sure how much water you would have had to swim through or, or like, you know, try and navigate through, but it must have been like an awful feeling of like being trapped under black water. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you I can't describe the intensity, the power or, you know, you, you mentioned swimming. There's no swimming involved. Yeah, the, you're being literally thrown around by the, this almighty power. I mean, it is the was the world's largest natural disaster of our lifetime and still is. 
you know, quarter of a million people dying in milliseconds. Um, there's not, you know, and I know that there are tsunamis and earthquakes and things like that that have happened since, but, you know, nothing on that scale. And remember, nobody knew what a tsunami was back then either. It was very uncommon for people to understand or to know about these phenomenon. So it's indescribable and it's such an amazing feat that there were any survivors at all. Mm -hmm. This is what I find so incredulous is not that quarter of a million people died, but that there were any survivors at all mm -hmm. because it was so um, destructive. I mean, when we flew over the next day <clears throat> in the chopper, the entire geography of the land was completely flattened for miles inland, mm -hmm. everything destroyed and flat you know, no buildings, nothing had survived. And it was just when you when you were going over, you knew that what you survived was massive, but you didn't understand the scale until you flew over. And then I was like, oh, my God, how did anybody survive this? And even if we and if we did survive it, then what is our purpose in being here? And for me, that was a real kind of thing because I do believe that once the soul has come here to do what it's here to do then it kind of moves on and you know passes so I was like I had this very strong spiritual sense of you're you've not done what you've, you needed to do in this life and I really hadn't you know I hadn't found my purpose then I hadn't I you know I, I when I was drowning in that hut all I could think was, I can't believe I'm going to die and I haven't done anything in my life. You know, all of my career success was pretty meaningless in those moments. Um, it was all about kind of like, I've, I've not, you know, met someone and fallen in love. You know, I've had not had my big love. I've not, you know, I've not had a family. I've not, you know, I've not found my purpose. I've, you know, like I can't, I couldn't believe that I was going to die without having truly lived. That's what I was really confronting at that time. And I'd been suffering from periods of depression uh, um, in and out through th those years of my life. This sense of trying to find meaning and, you know, is, is this all there is to life? Going to college, getting a job, you know, and then kind of like doing the nine to five, getting married, having kids and then dying. That, just felt like it wasn't enough for me. And I kept feeling like that can't be, that can't just be all there is to life. And um, yeah, I I really kind of like noticed in that hut and that was the first time I thought I was going to die. You know, my intuition said to me, remember this moment, Annie, you do not want to die. And that was very powerful for me because obviously I did get PTSD after afterwards and still suffered from depression and anxiety and all those kind of things for a while afterwards but that memory would always keep me going and be like okay you don't want to die this is just a bad period that you're going through uh you just need to you know keep going and there will be some light at the other end sort of thing and two questions around that first of all did uh, and I, I had this actually uh on my mind to, to ask you earlier but did you feel that that next day was like almost like hitting the reset button for you? Like it was like, okay, I, I lived my 32 or 33 years in really, you know, as you say, you know, your, 
you know, nine to five, you know, go to school, blah, blah, blah. Did you feel that it was a reset button for you as to take on a higher power from that day forward? And during that time of, you know, the, uh, telling yourself that you don't want to die, did you feel a higher power, you know, take you somewhere else? You know what I did? Because the fact that I survived, it, you know, I nearly drowned three times in that tsunami. And each time, you know, so the second time I thought I was going to die, I was trapped underneath a falling building when we'd been washed inland. And that time, uh, you know, and I was trapped face first. So and whatever was holding me down was too heavy for me to move. And I was drowning once more. And I had this um, palm reading years ago, and I mentioned it to Oprah as well, that um, in that palm reading, they said, you're going to have a near-death experience, but you will survive it. And at the very time that I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to die again, uh, that memory, I mean, it's, in, it's so curious how the human brain works, right? It, it gives you the information that you need at that time. That memory popped up and it was like, no, this is your near-death experience. This is that palm reading that you had however many years ago. And at that very same moment, I was then released from what was holding me back. But it really did feel like there was some kind of guardian angel, like pulling things out the way for me and making my path clear for me. And, you know, even when I got to higher ground before I started to give first aid, you know, I kind of fell apart for those first few moments. And um and I could hear the discombobulated voices of all of the survivors. And I had found my friends very fast after the tsunami. So everybody that I was with um, was safe. And um, this kind of intuitive voice came to me again and it said, come on, Annie, people need you. And this sense of higher purpose, this sense of connectivity to a greater, greater than myself, this sense of, of um, you know, community or whatever is what then helped me to come out of my own shock and my own um you know kind of I was kind of just a human what's the word um I was just rocking up and down and not able to breathe and say anything you know and just you know that kind of thing so it helped me to come out of that and get and get you know, help other people. So I felt that that call, whether it was God or whether it's a guardian angel, whether it's my own intuition, whether it's my spirit, whatever, I don't know what it is. I don't really care to define it, but there was definitely something there with me that helped me to tap in to those things. And as I said to Oprah, I think it started off with survivor guilt, you know, this, this incredible sense of uh, survivor guilt that you have, that you've survived. You know, I felt guilty that I'd survived. I didn't have a family at the time. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't feel like I deserved to survive, right? And that all, all these families had been ripped apart and all that kind of thing. And, you know, when I was speaking with Oprah, I, I said to her, you know, we need to make the most of our lives, make our lives mean something and count for something because we've been given this second chance and, you know, there is some purpose that I haven't yet discovered in why I've been saved. But this thing that I said to Oprah really became my North Star in the sense that it then really sort of set me on this path of continuous searching to find that meaning, that purpose, to do something meaningful with my life, to do something that leaves the world in a slightly better place, 
um, than how I found it in my own tiny little way. You know, um, it doesn't. I don't have to be the president of the United States, but you know, in my own little way that I can just make things slightly better. You know, I, sorry, I watched that episode of the Oprah Winfrey Show with you on it, and uh, you did. Yeah, I did. And your leadership uh, qualities came out uh, to me in that. It's fun that you mentioned it earlier that you, you wanted to be the leader in that group. Your leadership qualities came out to me in that episode. And, you know, it was one of those things that you, you know, you talked with purpose and you talked with very much, you know, you, you never really quivered in your, in your emotions and stuff. And I thought to myself, wow, like that takes some really, you know, genuine, uh, tough leadership yeah, like yeah. you know you have to be tough mentally as well not just you know not just in in words but you know mentally as well and so yeah, I wanted to mention that to you as well so you know that was that it was it was an awesome clip it was awesome to, to build off what JB just said there the you mentioned intuition quite a lot in in your story Annie and if we look in like just a general decision-making situation, people have a tough time making decisions when there's some kind of contention or disagreement in the room. Is it a factor of fight, flight, and freeze in the fact that you were able to, you know, even something as simple as, oh my God, there's water, where's my passport, to then going through that initial uh, tsunami with the first time you felt like you were going to die to now I'm doing first aid. Was it past experiences and your uh, just instincts that led that versus having that mass hysteria or is there, is there other key factors that play a role there? I think that there is past experiences that make a difference. Yeah. So it's funny because my, my best friend who I was visiting there, um, she said to me, uh, our lives have prepared us for this, Annie. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you and I have had a difficult, you know, childhood. We've had difficult experiences, challenges that we've already faced. Lots of challenges already. I'd already had a couple of near-death experiences before the tsunami even happened. So she was like, those things have prepared us for this and and I and I was puzzled at the time by what she meant because you know we're still in this sort of shock state and everything. But when I look back in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, actually, uh, the reason I was so resilient during the tsunami is because probably I'd already had near death experiences because I'd already had big challenges that I'd had to overcome because I'd already had things that had made me a strong person. So, like I said, I think. It's the it's the sum of all of the experiences that give you the character that you have. Uh, you, you know, you're born your essential, authentic, spiritual being. Yeah, but the things that also add to your character is the not just the things that happen to you, but how you react to them, how you handle them, how you take those experiences. If you take, you know, the death of a of a loved one or of a child and you you know you grieve and you lose yourself and your depression over it or you then use it as a sense of meaning and purpose to write a book and to inspire and motivate other people in your life these are all choices that we're making and those choices are determined by our mental fitness on the one hand the the resilience that we have 
uh, as well as the experiences that we've all, all also had. So I think it's a combination of your true spirit and essence, plus the things, the nature and nurture combined together, I would say. So Anna, could you tell us then from that, how you took that experience and then grew it into a literally a, a global business that you connected with, you know, people across the globe, you know, teaching your mental fitness and teaching how to, you know, take it to the next level or be somebody else? Sure. So uh, originally, um, you know, I, I, it took me some time to find this pathway. And, it, you know, I went through uh, multiple cancer diagnosis, including a stage four cancer diagnosis to find this pathway. So I, I'd like to say it happened directly after the tsunami, but it didn't. Six years later, I had um, all of those things to deal with. And that went on for like another five years or so. But I'm happy to say I've been in remission for the last 10 years now. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And that's without having done chemo as well, which I'm very proud of. But in this period of time where I was, um, learn, you know, kind of having the, the cancer thing, because I believe in the mind-body-spirit connection, I realized that having been diagnosed in my 30s, that there was something that I needed to look at that wasn't, you know, quite right. You know, fair enough if you get cancer when you're over the age of 65, 70, that's body degenerating. But to have cancer at such a young age it kind of was a sign to me that I needed to look at my life. So I kind of went into this journey of self-discovery of mental, emotional and spiritual and physical health and well-being, and changed my entire lifestyle. And whatever kind of, um, I, I, you know, was doing a lot of holistic and complementary practices, whether, whether it was yoga, meditation, mindfulness, Ayurveda, acupuncture, emotional freedom technique, neuro-linguistic programming, whatever it was, I decided I wanted to become a practitioner in it so I could do it to myself and not just rely on others. After, so after the that five-year journey, I had all of these string of qualifications and so people had naturally started to gravitate to me for support and advice. And when I was talking to one of those people and I said, have you spoken to your therapist about this? They said to me, to be honest, the, the, the support and advice I've gotten from you has been more helpful than my therapist. And so that's when I realized I had my light bulb moment and I was like, of course, you've survived all of these big cha life challenges. It makes sense that you now you that the reason you've gone through those things is to be a beacon of light for other people, to be an inspiration, to give them hope that they too can um, come out of what's going on for them and that you can support them with those things. And sure enough, I then, you know, kind of um, did some coaching qualifications, started coaching. Uh, therapy wasn't really for me because I don't believe in going back into the past and unknitting everything all the time. I think that can kind of be a bit re-traumatizing. So although I, I look at the, the place where you've developed all of these behaviors and limiting beliefs, which is in our formative years, we don't spend a lot of time hanging around in the, you know, unpicking of all of it it's just to understand where our present day behaviors come from and you know and then I work with my clients uh, I kind of niched into executive coaching because I was a c-suite executive myself before I became a coach 
they are the clients that I enjoy working with, the high achievers, the action and goal orientated people, you know, it can be perfectionists and, you know, um, all of those kind of like leadership behaviors as well that, that I, that I've demonstrated in my life as well. And so I kind of moved into that executive transformational kind of coaching space, coaching, mentoring and consulting space. And I love what I do. You know, I help my clients to really connect with their true authentic selves. Um, I help them to become more productive, higher performer and um, get but all from being in a place of ease and flow and being fulfilled and content and satisfied with what they've got so that they can then attract more of what they want to them, whilst also reducing burnout, stress and anxiety and all of those things. And obviously, you know, I have my mission, which is to inspire, motivate and empower over a quarter of a million leaders to have a positive impact in the world and live their lives with purpose, joy and mental freedom. And that's in honour of the same number of people that died in the tsunami. It's amazing. Um, can you tell uh, for the listeners, in your opinion, how you take a challenge like you went through and I mean, we're not all going to go through your challenge. Let's face it. That's you're like one in, you know, how many people that have actually, you know, had that, had that happen to, but uh, it's very slim as opposed to the rest of us. But so what is your, what would your one takeaway be of uh, taking a challenge and turning it into a, uh, a possibility or an opportunity? Yeah. So I think you need to really recognize that being in the present, it's a simple thing, right? But it's a very meaningful thing. Being present is what we really need in order to be fully content, fulfilled and joyful because all of our problems stem from not being present. So depression is being stuck in the past and not letting go of what's happened in the past, not letting go of those old stories Anxiety is being future focused. And what if this happens? What if that happens? And, you know, when you are really able to be in the present moment, and I know it's not easy. Okay, I'm not suggesting it's easy. You know, I myself have spent a long time doing multiple, you know, uh, Vipassana meditations to get me here. But the one thing that I had to do when I got the stage four diagnosis was was work out how to live in the present moment. Because if I didn't, I would drive myself insane with when, when I'm, how long have I got left? When am I gonna die? What about this, this test and that test? And da, 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 da. The only way you can manage that sort of thing is to just enjoy this moment. And the thing is, it doesn't really matter that you had a stage four diagnosis or not. I could walk out the house and get run over by a bus. You know, so um, it's all wasted mental energy. OK, so my program is very much focusing on helping you to. Um, I talked about a garden of weeds before. So we are pre-programmed to have a garden of weeds with the negativity bias. And what we need to do is we need to be very conscientious and conscious about going in and taking out each of those weeds. The weeds are the limiting beliefs and the negative thoughts that we all have. I'm not good enough. Um, this person doesn't like me. Um, I'm never going to get promoted. All of those kind of like negative things that we have that are there to keep us alive. 
However, they're not there to help you live your best life. So you need to go in and you need to weed out each of these weeds one by one and then plant the seed of, of a good flower in there so that you can grow your garden of flowers. And there is a process to that. You know, I have a very specific process that people go through um, that you have to that you have to practice those at least those 15 minutes a day to become mentally fit. You know, the doctor says we need to spend 30 minutes on our physical fitness. With mental fitness, you only need 15 minutes a day. And if you do this consistently, over time, you're able to shift your entire neuroplasticity from surviving, from your surviving brain, which kind of lives in parts of your left brain, um, that's the amygdala sort of side, to your thriving part of your brain, which is your parasympathetic nervous system. You know, And you will see, if you were to do brain MRI imaging at the beginning and the end, you would see that there would be atrophy in parts of the left brain and the survival brain. There would be new gray matter in parts of the right brain and new neuro pathways created. And the great thing about this is you can do it at any age, right? So people that kind of get to 75 and they're like, oh, I'm too old to change now. If you want to, you can, right? And you, your life can be exponentially better as a result more productivity, higher performance, greater empathy for yourself and for others, as well as a whole host of, you know, um, EQ performance scores that go up. 18 out of all of the 18 EQ scores go up as a result of this program. Amazing. Love it. How important is <clears throat> drawing from your past experiences and now what you're doing? Um I was at a networking event last week and a gentleman, Ian Hill said, you know, there's 70 billion people on the planet or there's been 70 billion people that have lived on this planet and there's only one person and that's you. There's only one you. When we're talking to other individuals or dealing with challenges, how important is the empathy and community that uh, empathy can bring in overcoming that? It's so important, you know, I mean, whatever your spiritual beliefs are, right? Every single religion and every single spiritual belief promotes this concept of be good to thy neighbor, love thy neighbor, um, compassion, or kindness, all that kind of thing. I believe that we're all one, you know, when we die, we will go into the one consciousness kind of thing. So, you know, it's so important for you to have that empathy for yourself and for others. Because the more that we have that love component going higher, that's the only thing that's going to combat the fear, the survival brain fear-based messaging that we all have, that we all kind of focus on this, the one negative thing that's happened in our life in the week, as opposed to the 95 to 99% of positive things that have happened. So if we want to make this earth in general vibrate at a higher level, if we want to kind of like create a, a world that we want to live in. I want to live in a world that is peace, kindness, tolerance, um, all of those kind of things. Well, we have to be the change that we want to see. You cannot change the world without changing yourself. If you are getting um, angry at somebody when you're driving, then, you know, that's the whole chain reaction that happens you know we have to take that higher ground we have to give that compassion 
more first of all to ourselves for being imperfect beings and the more that you can give compassion and forgiveness and unconditional love to yourself for being imperfect the more you can give it to other people and normally when we don't like someone else in our sphere it's because um they are a mirror of something that we don't like about ourselves so the way that I like to talk about ch challenging people with my clients is, you know, what is this person coming here to teach you about, you know, uh, what is it that you need to learn? What skill is it that you need to grow? You know, do you need to be more patient? Do you need to be more resilient? Do you need, you know, what, what is it, you know, remembering that if we zoom out into that spiritual being, having a human experience rather than just being egos and humans, then what what is that kind of like lesson there for us? So obviously, you know, that's not easy for a lot of people to do, but the more compassion, the more love that we can generate in ourselves genuinely for, for ourselves and for others, it has that energetic impact on others rather than what we see with social media, which is a lot of negativity, and then that triggers more and more negativity, which is why AI can be a scary proposition because it's going to learn about our negativity bias. So you need to be a little bit careful about that. Um, but yeah, just if we want to live in the world that we want to live in, then we do, we have to start with us. Does that answer your question? Very much. Very so. perfect. Well, well said. Yeah. Um, I understand that you have a, a memoir that you've written. Um, is there something that you would like to share a, a story or a, a, a something, a lesson in there that maybe that you would, that, that really stands out to you that you've written in there? Yeah. So my, my whole messaging is really every challenge is an opportunity for your growth. And what if in your darkest hour, you find your greatest strength and rather than being crushed by the experiences that life is happening, you know, if you reframe that life is happening for you and not to you, then how can you take the challenges that you may be facing in your life and turn them into something positive for your spiritual or, you know, emotional or mental, physical growth kind of thing. So, I mean, let's take Christopher Reeve, for example, you know, he, he was very passionate about, um, you know, his whole paraplegic state that he got into afterwards. You know, there are multiple people when you look at different examples of people who have managed to do that. So it really is about that resilience that you're creating in your mindset and of having that kind of that attitude that life is happening for me and not to me. Um, because if you feel that you have had some hand in what's going on for you, no matter how negative the experiences seem to be, then I think that that gives you a lot more empowerment over feeling that you can make choices about it. A lot of people feel like life is happening to them. And why is this happening to me? And what have I done, God? And, and all of that kind of thing. But if you just try and take you, that that's judgment yeah and if we it's only humans that judge I don't believe that there's judgment going on in the spiritual realm right because God is almighty and is forgiving that's you know what we're kind of you know sort of led to believe not just led to believe but that's what I feel as well yeah. um, and I know having experienced near death that that's not the end so that's why I can say 
with certainty that we're spiritual beings having a human experience because of having been on the cusp I've then gone, I've then realized, oh, okay, this this is nothing. This is meaningless. What happens to this body doesn't count because this isn't who I am. And that uh, that realization that we are more than us, we're not the thoughts, we're not the feelings, we're not the body, that we are this spiritual being. That's why I'm very strong in that sense. And I had that whole, you know, the people coming to visit you and the white light and all of that kind of thing. So you know all of those anecdotal reports that people give they're very they all say similar things you know so so that's why I'm passionate about understanding that and always kind of trying to zoom out what's that spiritual lesson that you're here to learn and how you know what are those skills and qualities that you need to gain as a result so yeah every challenge is an opportunity for your growth and I think you said it uh, earlier really well as well, that that empowerment is in everyone. It, you don't have to be special. You don't have to have some sort of, you know, unique being. It's in everyone. If you want to do it, you can do it. But you have to tell yourself you can. And, you know, the more you tell yourself you can, you're going to, right? So I, I really like how you said that. But, you know, a lot of people have to be able to grasp that at the same time and not play the woe is me card. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I am not a special superhero kind of person. I'm just an ordinary person, just like you and all of the listeners who had extraordinary things happen to them in their life and then was forced into digging in deep and finding that strength and that motivation. And I'm not going to say it was easy. It wasn't. I spent years, decades of my life, you know, depressed and anxious and struggling to find the how, because I knew that I wanted to change it, but I didn't know the how. Now I've also discovered the how, and I'm very effective at being able to shift people's neuroplasticity so that they are really thriving, experiencing more joy, more peace, more fulfillment and satisfaction than ever before, whilst also reducing burnout and stress and anxiety and the rest of it. And you know, everybody can do it. You know, it, it. like I said, it's 15 minutes of practice a day. You just need to find the person to work with. Or if you don't want, if you want to do it on your own, be disciplined about working these things on your own. And, you know, you can, you can, you can do it also by reading books and doing things. Obviously, you get a lot faster if you work with somebody. But for me, for example, it was my husband that I learned a lot of the things from. You know, he was the yoga teacher and the meditation teacher when I met him a month before my diagnosis. And so he was the person, you know, he was my coach effectively and helped me to, you know, slowly but surely shift things. And then obviously the more that I did, the more that I learned. Um, and you, when you start to notice those things yourself, you know, I healed myself of, of recurrent tonsillitis in my first 10 day meditation silent meditation vipassana course and that's when i really understood the power of the mind and how so many illnesses are a product of our mental and emotional state and when we are able to train our mind into doing what we want it to do rather than our mind telling us what, what who we are and what we should do then you are so powerful in what you can achieve 
You and I are going to talk off camera, Annie. I, I love that. Uh, that very much what you talk is what I do on a daily basis. But uh, getting back to what you said about being easy, anything that's easy is usually not worth doing. So, uh, you know, if you can't challenge yourself as you took yourself to the ultimate challenge and turned it into what you've done here, uh, to me, it's it's an absolute, uh, I'm not even sure how, how, to, how to really word it, but it's it's one of those things that, you know, how many times do I get to meet uh, a tsunami survivor? The answer is one. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> indeed and like like you said before you know other people are not going to be having these huge necessarily huge challenges but you can take these lessons with whatever's going on in your own life you know if you, everybody loses loved ones you know we all have job insecurity at times we all have some financial worries at times all all of the kind of you know we might be uh, breaking up from a long-term relationship for example you know, everybody's experiencing challenges and different scales, yeah. But you can take the le the lessons that I learned from this huge kind of like tsunami, death defying experience, and apply them to to the challenges that you're facing in your own life as well. And that's what I really want the listeners to take away, is that you know, don't give up hope. Um, you, you know, things can seem very tough at the time. You will not see the lesson right in the middle of it but it's always with hindsight when you're a little bit further away that you can see what was that that thing that came to you for the thing that you grew and have faith and confidence in yourself this is the biggest thing have faith and confidence in yourself that you can and you will overcome whatever it is face you're facing at this time and it won't be in your timing or your controller's timing but it will be in divine timing and trust the process you know um, having faith, I think, really helps, you know, having uh, this uh, understanding that we are all connected, that we are part of this one consciousness, God, whatever you want to call it, the universe, I think really helps um, as well. And understanding that the that death is not the end, that this is just another portal to another dimension or something. So if you can kind of, you know, listeners take that away from this, then I hope that will help you in your darker times as well. Trust the process uh, echo, echoes in my head nonstop. Uh, and this was uh, amazing. Like uh, we could probably talk for days again. Yeah. Like this is just one of those things that, you know, uh, the more that uh, the more that I, I listen to you, the more that I, I want to listen to you. So uh, it's, it's just been great. So uh First of all, thank you very much for being on the Hive Nation podcast today. Second of all, where could our listeners find you? How can they connect with you, uh, et cetera? Sure. So you can find me on on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So uh, on Instagram, I'm Annie.Nakvi, A-N-I dot N-A-Q-V-I. That's November Alpha, Quebec, Victor, India. Same on LinkedIn, Annie Nakvi on LinkedIn and on Facebook as well. And my website, which is ultimateresultsgroup.com. So you can come and find me on ultimateresultsgroup.com. And, it, you know, I'd love to connect with you. Also book a discovery call if you want to talk about any of your coaching requirements or mental fitness requirements as well. Amazing. And is your memoir on Amazon or where can people find that? 
So my it's it's in the process of being published at the moment. Yeah. So keep an eye out for it. It's going to be called Tsunami, the wave that saved my life. And it is going to be out within Q1 or, you know, beginning of Q2. So keep your eyes on this space. If you want to sign up um, to have an advanced copy, then go onto my website and you can sign up to my newsletter from there as well. Annie, maybe uh, maybe I'm offside by asking this, but maybe uh, we could get you back on the Hive Nation podcast to do a memoir release. Absolutely, would love to. Let's do that. Amazing, sounds fantastic. Thank you awesome. very much again. I really appreciate your time, Annie. This was amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure, and I wish you a wonderful day and your listeners as well. Oh, thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so much, Hive Nation. Uh -huh. We're out. <laughs>